Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Pulp Today with my guest. Am I going to point to the right side? Yes, I am. Emily Edwards, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, how are you? Very good. You're in Massachusetts I'm now? in Connecticut, Connecticut, smaller and whiter. <laughs> smaller and whiter even than, than Pasadena, I think. Yeah, yeah, from. surprisingly so. Yeah, it's the Pasadena of New York. I it think. is, it they, is. Just, I always tell people Connecticut is simply a suburb of New York City. It's yeah. the only state that's a suburb of one city that's not in its state. Yeah, even New, even New Jersey has more going on for it, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They yeah. have stuff. We have nothing. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, lovely to have you back. You're a first returning guest. It's so good to see you. It's good to see you too. Uh, Emily hosts the podcast uh, Fuck Boys of Literature. I do. Which I have appeared on twice. Oh, I think at I least think. twice, maybe talking more than about, that. Talking about Sam Spade and James Bond. I do have to come up with a- uh, You did Dick Diver too from- Oh, that's right. We did- yeah. We did uh, my one of my favorite books. It was such a good excuse to reread that book. It's a beautiful um, novel. Yeah, it really is. It's it is. Uh, it's sort of like you know. I understand why Great Gatsby, which is sharper and shorter and to the point, is the mm -hmm. one that gets shoved down the gullets of high school students. But yeah, Tender but is this is a mature book. Is yeah is is much more of like oh no, I knew all those characters in Great Gatsby were assholes. Let me yeah. make. If I didn't make that completely clear, even Nick Carraway, kind of an asshole. And let me tell you why. Exactly. Uh, I know but, him very uh, well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's a great podcast. I recommend it. And Emily has a book coming out. Do you know when? when is the release date? The release date for my first traditionally published novel is uh, November 8th of 2022. So just in a couple short months. Nice. And the title is Viviana Valentine Gets Her Man. It's the first in the Girl Friday mystery series that I get to write. And I'm very excited. Nice. Now, are other writers doing their own female detectives in that series? Or no, it it's all me. Series? It's all just Viviana Valentine uh, and her PI boss, Tommy Fortuna. In case you couldn't tell, is a very sort of satirical, fun romp playful look at mid-century PIs. It takes place in 1950 in New York City. And it's been really fun to write it. Oh, yeah. I, I'm i always kind of amazed when people write period things and cram it full of uh, anachronism. I think I was watching the first episode of Mrs. Maisel and someone said, let's do lunch. And I was like, Mm, no, 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 no. It's been really fun to to look into like the the turns of phrases and things like oh, that yeah. that were really popular in like the late 1940s, early 1950s. And people are like, did they really talk like that? And I'm like, yes, actually, mm -hmm. they really did. I know it's weird, but they yeah. did. No, there's there's stuff where you go, look, everyone wasn't as sharp-witted as they are in Dashiell Hammett or in a Robert Riskin script or a Frank mm -hmm. Dapper movie. But a lot of that very clever phraseology was out there. And I mean, I, I have the advantage that my father was someone who wrote the stuff that you're doing yeah. your, your pastiche of. And so that language comes naturally to me. But you know, when I was writing the Betty Page series set in the, in 52 or 53, every once in a while I would come up against something, you know, she's from Tennessee. That's a slightly different language than I'm yeah, used to. Yeah. And uh, I remember I wanted someone, there's a point where someone says something incredibly unbelievable to her. 
and I had scripted she her saying, do what now? Yeah. Because I had heard Southerners use that in the 70s and 80s. And I literally went on Facebook and said, I need someone with a grandmother from Nashville. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to call her up, you know, pretend it was about something else so that you soft so that she doesn't think you're just taking advantage of her. And then ask her if she said, do what now when she was a little girl. Exactly. And, uh, I got an answer that yes, do what now has been around forever. Because <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you you can Google it. Sometimes you can like the first yeah. use of, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thankfully, like, Marion Webster know. has a lot yeah. of those. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in the first issue of Betty Page, I, I had her say like fun I don't or like fun you will. And my editor yeah. was like, that's that's why we hired you because you you write shit like that. Yeah. But, uh, I had to find out when the first usage of the phrase shit list happened. Thankfully oh, nice. in World War II. So I'm like totally great. But yeah. Yeah. I was like really no, and, afraid that one was going to be anachronistic. It's that thing where no one will, you know, you go, no one will care. But I always insist that the real thing feels real, even to the people that don't know that it's not real. Absolutely. I just think in my, anything in my Doc Savage story, which took place in 39, where one, uh, you know, one guy was talking to a scientist guy who had just gotten the radio working. And he says, you know, nice one, young Tom Edison. And even though Tom Edison is a reference anyone can make in that period, I was thinking about the Spencer Tracy movie, Young Tom Edison, which came out in 1940. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I changed it to Marconi. Perfect. Perfect. Perfectly good, yes. you know. Um, and uh, it's, it is it is interesting how I wrote a thing, a Betty Page thing for Playboy, and I had her say about a federal agent and his sidekick when they came through the door don't worry i know these birds and the editor said isn't birds british slang from the 60s for girl and i said yes but in the 50s it was more general slang for people yeah other humans i said but you're right that there's a there's a fine line between period accuracy and something people will misunderstand right 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 and you'd rather have them understand it. So I said, let me change it to something else. Yeah, that's a good editor right there. You know, one of my one of my favorites is uh I love using Jasper. Who is this Jasper? Like my father said that all the time. Yeah. I'm like, that was the thing, as the yeah. people said. The the you know? one that one of my editors had a problem with. My dad grew up in Brooklyn in the 1950s. So that's kind of where I'm and he like kept sure. the lingo his entire life. And so like I used, oh, they've got a sour puss on their face. And everybody was just like, and my copy editor was like, I don't know what this means. And I was just like, pretty sure everyone knows what that one means. They didn't know sourpuss? No. Yeah. God, I feel like that's still in use. But then again, you know. Yeah. And also sometimes I have to go like, now did everybody say this? Or, did <laughs> or it, was it just a my dad thing? Is this my dad slang? And what, yeah. like one of my favorites of his is he would refer to the telephone as the Amici. <gasps> That's an Italian thing. Yeah. It's not, you know where it comes from? Where? Don Amici starred in the Alexander Graham Bell story. <laughs> and in, uh, is it Frank Hawker or Howard Hawks? I think Howard Hawks, Gary Cooper movie, Barbara Stanwyck called Ball of Fire. I love that movie. Uh, one of the gangsters says, call him up on the Amici. And my father started using it. I don't know that anyone but the screenwriter of that movie and my dad ever used the Amici <laughs> with the telephone, but it was the kind of thing he loved. So my favorite you know. thing that we got from my dad was his Italian grandfather had an outhouse instead of like a, a 
you know, proper bathroom. And mm -hmm. so my dad did not know that the Italian word for bathroom wasn't backausa because that's how his like, you know, right. Sicilian grandfather pronounced backhouse. So, funny. you know, that one I was like, oh, wait, no, not everybody called it the backausa. You just, yeah. No, the there, there are definitely things that are family things. And then there are things like I grew up hearing Italians say, Madonna, <laughs> which to my ears as a kid, I thought was M-A-R-R-O-N-E. And then I years later, I went, oh, wait, that is a really lazy R pronunciation of Madonna. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're literally saying mother of Jesus. Yeah, like, oh, Madonna. Totally, I had written it out as Marone, and I'm like, that's not no, right either. No, they're not talking about chestnuts. They're talking yeah, about it, yeah, the mother of God. Madonna. And uh, once you hear it, you can hear it. But before you know what the letters are that yeah, are being wildly <laughs> slurred together, Anyway, all of that to say, what book have you brought us today? What are okay, I brought you something. Speaking of misinterpreting languages you are not a part of, I brought you The Babysitter's Club, Super Mystery Number 12. Let me get this in the camera. It's called Dawn and the Surfer Ghost. This was nice. my favorite book when I was 12 years old. Well, and coincidentally, it's number 12. So It is. Know, it, it is number out. 12. Now, it's my original read... copy. Nice. Had you read, I, I always love that. Had you read one through 11? Uh, I read most of them. I, I actually found all of my Babysitter's Club books in my brother's basement last week. And nice. I was unpacking them all. And you know, like it was a, it was a serialized children's novel, like, like, corporate print out, you know, just like churn them out kids book series. Sure. And I had probably 20 or 30 of the regular ones and every mystery in the entire series. I think it was like 45. And I was like, oh, that started early, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now, do you know, are they all written by the same person? Is it a house name like my dad often worked under? Uh, it is under the name Anne M. Martin, who started the series. But mm. once it started to really pick up, they did a whole, um, you know, Carolyn Keene. They just hired ghostwriters to write a bunch of them. Right. So, um, you know, they have like the brand Bible that is very, very good. But in some, like later on, even I started to notice when I was a kid, like they spell names wrong and nobody ever caught it. You know, like okay. one of the main characters is Christy and then some they might call her Kirsty. And you're just kind of like, oh, you just farmed that out to someone who... <laughs> Well, who wasn't yeah. copy edited very well. Well, and even the original author could have forgotten or mistyped it by then. Yeah, she just does not yeah, give a damn by the time she's on book 95. Yeah, there's a lot. And, you know, a lot of sometimes you can go through your galleys with a fine tooth oh, comb. Oh, God, yeah. It, eight people can miss a thing. And, it's and by wild. then it lives. It stays. Yeah. God bless you. You made it past. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, and also books like that are not as heavily copy edited if they're copy. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's not, that is not the point of them. I always think it's fascinating. One of my like overall premises with this series and with stuff that I talk about with literature and especially with Pulp Fiction, this stuff wasn't supposed to live. We weren't supposed to love no. it that much. You were supposed to t read your copy of Doc Savage that you bought for a nickel throw it in the garbage you were not supposed yeah. to love it so much that you took it home and you put it in a box and you had it for 60 years and then you put it in plastic sometime in the 60s and then you sold it at a convention for 30 dollars sometime yeah later. you know like this is all supposed to be garbage literature that that was unloved and yeah the public has always said but no this is my favorite thing what's wrong with you it's I amazing forever. yeah 
the staying power of this particular book series is like completely wild to me. Like they were trash books when I was a kid. Like, you know, teachers would look down on you if they caught you reading them, you know, and, and they just had a Netflix series based on the exact same text. And it was like lauded. It was a great series. It was really cute. And and are there new ones still? Are they still doing this series? No, they canned it. It's Netflix. No, I mean the books. Are oh, they- no, the books? Um, that I actually don't know. I don't think they are. I think mm. they have finally kind of petered out. But it took until like the mid-2000s for them to right. finally stop making and new ones. And these off in the 80s? When did the Yeah, they did. Like, the late yeah. 80s or like early 90s. That's, I my, say that's the- my memory of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I'm at my age, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a relatively new thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No. But, yeah, no, this was this was like a spinoff series. The mystery series like a spinoff series. And this one came out in right. 1998, and I was 12 when it came yeah. out. So it was like, ooh, the fancy sure. new thing. You know, like more universe with my favorite characters. Kind well, of and, it, and it's funny how that becomes a thing. Um, I had a friend on uh, – great writer great friend named uh, kelly sue milano and she did a goosebumps super chiller oh distinct from a goosebumps mm-hmm. you know different series different numbering there's more L. Stein. yeah uh but it was just what that one of those funny things like it's a universe i'm so completely not connected to oh but absolutely we all you know we all have our we all have our own things and that's uh, that one yeah yeah, for me, like I was just asked to write a John Carter story, oh, that's and those were the books that I was reading when I was yeah. 11 years old and 12 years old. And it's so funny, I described something. Hold on, let me decline this. <laughs> it says Washington D.C., but I don't think it's the president. Probably um, not. I uh, I described this flying machine in it, and I was looking for reference to show the artist. And uh, one of the characters in the story I'm writing, or I should say the group of characters, uh, appear for the first time in the book, the fighting, A Fighting Man of Mars. And I went to my shelf and I pulled down the paperback of A Fighting Man of Mars, which I have not looked at in 30 years. Yeah. And the flying machine I described was on the cover as I had described it in the comic book. I had completely forgotten it, but somewhere in my head, I had... You knew I had filed away that the people of this city on Barsoom had flying machines that looked exactly like this. Of course, I sent to the artist and he beautifully recreated this paperback cover from and the and the cover was not contemporary when I got this. Yeah, the cover was from the early 60s uh, when I I worked in a little bookstore called uh, the bookshop and about half to a quarter of my paperbacks inside them have a red stamp that says after you've read it swap it for credit the book swap milltown new jersey and uh, <laughs> there was a lot of pilferage yes and i remember a guy came in with the entire i had just read a princess of mars the first one mm-hmm. i came in with the whole series and i was like these just go right like <laughs> just taking these right home and those are still the copies that i have but uh, but yeah, let's you you have something to read from. Uh... Oh, okay, yes, definitely. Uh, yeah. The 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 plot, as you can imagine, is fairly simple. Um, <laughs> there's a girl who uh, moves. Her parents get divorced. She grows up in California. Her parents get divorced. She moves to Connecticut, joins the Babysitters Club. 
Then That's she funny. misses her dad, goes mm-hmm. back to California, lives there with him. And she is in California and she is desperately missing her friends back in Connecticut. But there's a huge mystery because she lives next to the beach, as everybody in California does. And right. she surfs, as everybody apparently in California does. Sure. And she has to figure out who the surfer ghost is because someone killed the best surfer on the beach. And of course, in 1998, I'm just like, oh, this is so glamorous. This is so amazing. <laughs> this must be what California is like. I lived there for 15 years. I like, well, went to I'm beach sorry to disappoint you about the surfing ghosts. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, no surfing ghosts. And the glamour they're in. But yes. yeah, read, read, read us a passage, please. I just had to give you some heads No, I totally, some context very important. For the literature that is about to happen. Sure. Jill was folding up her blanket and Maggie was brushing the sand off her feet. I was just tucking the ghost story book into my bag when I heard Sunny gasp. There's still a surfer out there, she said. I don't believe it. It's almost dark. The surfer ghost, I whispered, peering at the waves. It must be him. I don't see anybody, said Jill, squinting. Right there, said Sonny, pointing. All the way out there, replied Maggie. But that's so far out, I can hardly see. We strained our eyes, trying to catch sight of the surfer. He's a little closer now, said Sonny. I can see him better. And I don't think it's Thrash, Don, or Thrash's ghost. He has pretty short hair, for one thing. He's coming in towards the old pier, cried Maggie. Let's run down there and see if we can get a better look. We dropped our stuff in the sand and went to run, keeping an eye on the surfer. Whoa, said Sunny. All of a sudden, she stopped short. Did you see that? What? I asked. That guy did an aerial, a 360. Wow, I exclaimed. Aerial maneuvers are really hard. You perform them when your surfboard is totally in the air when you're turning around. A 360 is the hardest turn to make because you'll spin all the way around until you're facing the direction in which you started. Nobody on this beach can surf like that, said Sunny slowly. In fact, I've only seen one person do that move. She gave me a serious look. Thrash, she said. I saw Thrash do that about a month ago. Jill and Maggie were staring at Sonny, and so was I. You mean, I mean, short hair or not, that surfer must be Thrash or Thrash's ghost. I still don't think there's any such thing as a real ghost, but I know something strange is out there. Well, we've lost him now, whoever he is, spoke up Jill. I can't see him anymore. She looked again at the waves and shook her head. Anyway, we should get moving if we're going to meet Liz on time. It was nearly dark as we walked past our spot and picked up our stuff. Jill and Maggie grabbed their things and walked on ahead, but Sonny and I lagged behind, still glancing at the waves. You know, said Sonny, whether or not that was an actual ghost, I'm beginning to think there is something fishy going on at the beach. I'm going to help you investigate from now on. We're a team. I stuck out my hand and we slapped each other five. All right, partner, I said. On the way to the parking lot, we passed a concession stand. It was almost closing time and the workers were cleaning up. A couple of them were kids I knew and I waved. Then I noticed a new guy. He had short black hair and a deep tan. And I know this sounds silly, but he gave me the creeps. I stared at him for a second. And then I looked away and dashed after my friends. Within minutes, we were piling into Liz's beat-up car. I was surprised how relieved I felt as we drove off. I was glad to be safe in the car, heading away from the beach on that foggy, dark night. (laughs) That is fantastic. (laughs) I I love thrash. The rash, the surfer, and the guy who tampers with his board is named Gonzo. (laughs) So dumb. 
Thrash and Gonzo. God, he originally it. proposed something set in the world of punk rock. The editor said, nah, make them surfers. No, make them surfers. Thrash and Gonzo. So that dumb. is fantastic. I but it's it. great. And it's very interesting. It's great. You know? The entire thing is written by someone who is so clearly not young, not from California, not a surfer, not a girl. Like, it's just so awkward yeah. and wonderful. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, and that's the thing that, but yet you were a girl and you loved them. Oh, I ate it up. I ate it up with a spoon when I was a kid. They yeah. were, you know, the main characters in, in Connecticut and the name of the fictional town was Stony Brook, Connecticut, but I was born in Stony Brook, Long Island and lived there until wow. I was like three or four. So I was like, oh, I was made for this. <laughs> I bet you anything that author didn't actually leave Stony Brook, Long Island. And that's. Oh, probably not. <laughs> yeah. No. But yeah, that's the way uh, the way California is written by people who've never been here is always just delightful. It's so funny. It's oh. so funny. Yeah, like my brother, after I moved to LA, my brother was like, oh, so lucky you get to live there. And then he visited me and he was like, fuck this. Why would you want to live here? And I was like, yeah, no, I know. It's expensive and it's crowded and it's dirty and it's pretty, but. Yeah. No, yeah. it's, but, but, you know, it's also. I, it always kind of cracks me up when, you know, in in various political arguments, particularly with people who've never been to Los Angeles, they're oh, like, oh, another Hollywood weirdo. I'm like, dude, you've never consumed anything me and my type didn't make for you. Exactly. Exactly. Like, people like me have made everything you have read, watched, eaten your entire goddamn life. Everything Sorry. that's ever been sold to you has been also been Every, sold yeah. to you by some weirdo like me. Sold to you. Yeah. You think the people who made the Dukes of Hazard were Southerners? <laughs> oh you my actually, God. Do you actually believe that's true? No. Yeah. No. You no, think no, the no. Andy Griffith show was no. made by, you know, no. not people from Hollywood somehow? <laughs> like, no. Beverly no. Hillbillies, dude, was made by people from Bel Beverly Hills. Not from exactly. Not, Hillbillies not do not make that. That yeah. is not. So it, it's always a little. Fun of you. Yeah. So it's always a little funny to me. Well, and again, the world, it would be a different situation now as everyone has observed. But like, you know, even at the time, there were people who thought Archie Bunker was the hero of all in the family. Oh, I know. I know. know. The sympathetic villain. I know. But, uh, and then you see everything else Norman Lear ever made. And you're like, oh, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> I think the oh, gentleman had an agenda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, uh, I was talking to you the other day on Twitter about the concept of failed satire. Yeah. And can you say that Fight Club is a successful novel or movie when way too many people in the audience get exactly the opposite point? Exactly. <laughs> and I think there's a degree to which you can't help that. As I oh, said absolutely. on Twitter, there are people who will read, you know, Junkie, one of the most har harrowing books ever written and go oh i should try heroin it's yeah like, yeah there's people who read train spotting and burroughs, go like yeah let's try yeah, it like yeah. not what william burroughs or irvine welch were after but hey you know knock yourself out literally yeah um so there's a degree to which you can't protect yourself from that but when it's when the only people that still talk about your book are the ones who got it wrong identify with the villain yeah maybe you didn't mount that quite as well as you as you yeah thought. i mean we all have things where we don't stick the landing it happens as part of a yeah. creative career yeah, no, but, and, uh, and, it, and it is the dan the greatest danger of doing a thing like that absolutely you know i always loved on 
you could almost clock on The Sopranos is he would go th- about three or four episodes where you'd start thinking, oh, Tony's a good guy. And yeah. then he'd murder someone in cold blood. Just to yeah, like, exactly. here's a little reminder, dude, not, not a good guy. Exactly. Not a good guy. Exactly. We're interested in his process and his evolution as a human being, but a terrible human being and a murderer and never, ever, yeah. ever forget that. Yeah, exactly. That kind of sandbagging, I think, is really, that's what you really remember. There was a movie called... Uh, can't remember the the Belgian title of it because it was originally from Belgium called uh, Man Bites Dog, mm-hmm. and it was a reality TV documentary sh- crew following around a serial killer. Oh, and the first half of it is kind of funny, yeah, in a very dark comedy way. And then at the midpoint, there is the kind of crime that nobody could ever think of as funny, and it was literally the director punching you in the face, going, "You thought." When yeah. he murdered the old lady in the first five minutes, you assholes laughed at yeah. what is wrong with you? Yeah. It was a real like, and it came out around the same time as Natural Born Killers. And I uh. always put the two together in my head. It's like, this is how you do it effectively. This is how you do it ineffectively. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's yeah. something very common in horror movies. I call it a Nazi aesthetic where, you know, you're, you, you're, you, you have the monster that kills people, but everybody he kills is kind of shitty. Yeah, yeah. So like you're kind of rooting for Freddie yeah, and for kind of Michael Myers, it. and you're like, no, that's not how that should be. Actually, no, no. you actually have to take a stand here sometimes. Yeah, yeah. risk no. pissing off Nazis. Sorry, it's, everyone. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a it's a very interesting thing. But I wanted to talk about uh, your book again for just a sec. The sure. the choice to do set in that period. And also to use first person singular, I didn't know that there was like an entire universe of literary Twitter that's like, oh, first person singular is wrong and bad. And I'm like, how do you people get through the day? Like, how, how do you, do you <laughs> how do you write other things? Like, I understand, like, uh, I find it very strange. Like the the writing in present tense always mm-hmm. freaks me out. Like first yeah. person present tense writing freaks me out like nobody's mm-hmm. business. Um, and I just don't understand how people get so turned off by this. Um, you know, like if you're, you, the thing about the, I can't believe I have to refer, I'm like I'm referencing the Babysitter's Club like it's like the seminal work, but it is to women mm-hmm. my age. Yeah. Um, so every single book in the series has a girl's name in the title and she's the main character of the book. Mm-hmm. So the first one was the main character, Christine, and then the second one is Claudia and so on and so forth. So this one is obviously a Dawn book because it's got Dawn's name in the title and you always right. know who's going to be telling you the story. And, and so- how many members of the Babysitter's Club are there? Oh God, I think it got up to seven at a certain point. Okay. It was like six. So there were a couple other ones uh, thrown in there. But it shifts between the various narrators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all had very distinct personalities and they were all, um, they were all different types and they were all actually racially diverse and, 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 um, uh, economically diverse so some of the girls were richer some of the girls were poorer that's great that's pretty rare for 19 late 1980s yeah and it's actually one of the things that actually reminded me of my hometown because i didn't go to an i wasn't i'm not from like an all white town in connecticut and i know they exist Mm -hmm. and so it was really nice to me that she had like an asian girl who was telling you the story and her grandma was japanese and lived with them and didn't speak any english and there was like a black girl who was also telling stories but she was like the only black girl and that was discussed quite frequently in the book series Mm -hmm. and so 
when you're reading it, when she says, I did something, you got to know different girls throughout the entire right. series. And I, and I always thought like, it makes a lot more sense than having them, you tell them, well, Dawn is the girl from California and Dawn's parents are divorced and Dawn does this. You got to connect with so many different kinds of people who sure. weren't like you. So I yeah. always thought that that was really brilliant for books that were written for girls between the ages of like eight and 13. Like, right. I wonder if there were I wonder if there were fans of the series that like only liked the Dawn Brooks. Yes, there were. You know? My my yeah. older sister read the series before I did, and she only liked the Christie books because Christie was very bossy and very like <laughs> I'm, and that was my sister to a T. You know, I had preferences, but I read them all with like equal, like kind of like love for the characters. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, it's it's just a fascinating thing for me. I mean, I can write in third person. I've written in third person. I I default to first more often than not because I think having a perspective on the story. The, one of the more interesting forms is third. What is it called? Uh, I'm gonna get it wrong now. It's so it's first person singular, and then there's first person plural. There's the thing. The Maltese Falcon is written in third person. Right. But the only person whose thoughts you have access to is Sam Spade, and he's That's in everything. Third person limited omniscient. Okay, there we yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. I, I always forget what it's called, but that's a fascinating way to because it, it's still a perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have everybody's thoughts, feelings, secrets, like what they're hiding behind their back, kind of thing. Yeah, and, and the, that's the other the one I kind of version of that is Dune. Yeah. where you're in on just everything, everyone, like a guy walks in with one line and it's like, he was thinking about pancakes. Really? <laughs> I hate that. Uh, okay. That's, that's like a lot of fantasy where I'm it's like, you have to know like, knowing what all these people are thinking. Oh my God. It would drive me absolutely and insane. And the biggest mistake that, that uh, David Lynch made was sticking with that. Uh, he was oh, very really? to it. And I, after the movie, I was like, you know, the only interesting characters in this movie are the Harkonnens because we never care what they think and we never hear them thinking. <laughs> but that rough cut must have been so weird because every other shot in the movie is Kyle MacLachlan or Francisca Annes. It's going, <laughs> and the, you know, and the voiceover is Dr. Yui wears the symbol of the imperial conditioning. Oh, so he God. must be telling me the truth. And it's like, or you could let the actor convey that emotionally. Yeah, or you could just be, show us. Yeah, that no. would be one. Well, that would be one way to do it. Why don't I just read the damn book? <laughs> yeah, but it's it it's dead. If you go back and watch that movie, it's deadly. Everyone is, you know, even you know Linda Hunt has you know eight lines in the movie as the shout out Mapes, and it's like he bears the signs. It's like she's showing. I can see in her eyes that she's observing something signs. about Paul and and his mother. And it's it's death. And the one, the more most interesting thing with for me that ever happened with that perspective um, in comic books, you know, there's the the tradition of caption boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To a degree, are an omniscient narrator, and I rarely use them. And then when I started using them, it was in Betty Page, which was the Secret Diary of Betty Page. So the caption boxes were all Betty. Yes, they were all her anyway. And uh, then on in Drawing Blood, it was also the main character's thoughts. And then I did a Zorro story and I went, you know what? I'm going to go with an omniscient narrator. This is a Zorro story. It's set in the past. I want mm -hmm. I want the narrator to be able to say the year is 1805. We're yeah. in Alta, California yeah. under Context. the imperial rule. I don't want to have to work. I don't want to have to have Zorro say to his father, you know, well, since we're under the rule of the Spaniards. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't want to do all that. But by the fourth issue, 
And I wrote it in, but I wrote it. The omniscient narrator had a flowery, snarky poetic. character, and there gotcha. was, it was very poetic. The narrator kept referring to Los Angeles as the beautiful small city with the long, long name, because the full name of Los Angeles is El Pueblo de la Nuestra Dama, La Reina Los Angeles, which is the that's the whole thing. It's actually not the city of angels; it's the city of the Queen of the Angels. Everybody always drops that part. Yeah, and. Uh, in the fourth issue, he goes into the underworld world to fight this supernatural creature in front of the Tongva goddess of the afterlife, whose name is Tomalok. And when I started writing our dialogue, I was like, Tomalok has been narrating this story the whole time. That's who's been telling <laughs> about Even Torah. just watching your face light up when you're like But it was like, I was now. literally writing her scenes and I went, I got to the last couple of pages and I went, Oh, her dialogue balloons should transition into the caption boxes as Zoro is walking out of hell. That would be awesome. And, and leaving her. And I yeah. when I when I sent it in, I was like, tell the tell the colorist we had been using this antique brown as the background for the captions. I said, when she speaks for the first time, make it the she antique brown background. So the audience will go, Oh, the goddess Tarmala, the goddess of death has been telling us this story. And that's why she knows what's in everybody's head, and that's why I she knows it. the history. And, uh, but I was like, even when I try to write third person, it's first person from an actual. Yeah, doc. exactly. I uh, tried writing a book in third person once and I switched it like halfway through to first person because I couldn't figure out how to discuss actions that were happening concurrently to other characters without sounding like, you know, King Arthur and Sir Bedivere no longer, no more than a swallow's flight away with like the, you know, yeah. Horse clippy cloppies. And I was just like, this is too messy. This is just too yeah, weird. And I can't do it. It is a tricky thing to limit yourself to one character's perspective. But this is a thing that I've noticed in bad writing, particularly in bad genre writing. Almost every bad genre television show or movie I've ever seen, you could cut out all of the scenes where you cut away to the bad guy. Oh, absolutely. You Most and I have had dialogue. conversations about how you don't need like B plots. Like yeah, but but particularly like, I mean, there's you know, Darth Vader and Grand Moff Tarkin on the Death Star involves Princess Leia, and that's kind of useful. But a lot of times, it's just utterly. And yeah. I get it as pacing. It's like I didn't want to do a dissolve between the hero on his horse and the hero arriving in town. So I yeah, need exactly. a way to you know the evil king in his throne room strangling a guy. But it's like you watch those scenes and you're like, the narrative value of this is effectively zero and nothing was funny. Nothing was interesting. Yeah. So I got to a weird place. Where I'm like, you know, I don't, I can do first person and never get out of the hero's perspective. And uh, it's more interesting to me when the audience is right there along with the hero figuring out exactly what as they yeah. are yeah. instead of knowing what the plan yeah. was. And sometimes you do have things, I think it's actually like life, where the hero, heroine, protagonist encounters something baffling. Yeah, they, exactly. You know, why did this happen? Why did, where, did, where the hell did that come from? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but a lot just, of it is just 
super lazy writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I find that almost all mysteries benefit from a singular first person perspective yeah. of just like we need the person who is confronting a problem to be the person who is overcoming the problem and and putting the, the slots together. Like I'm trying to think of other mysteries that are very, you know, like um the very classic obvious like Agatha Christie and then there were none. It's third person, but you don't have anybody's secrets. So they're just yeah. telling you the machinations of everything. And so that almost feels like you are the sleuth who's trying to put everything together. But yeah. I just do not understand how you can be uh, kind of omniscient in a mystery novel. Like it kind of ruins the yeah. mystery, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, I mean, uh, yeah, I think the glass key, which is one of my favorites is also an omniscient narrator, but again, he sticks with Ned Beaumont just yeah. like Maltese Falcon. He sticks with Ned Beaumont the whole time. I don't know that he goes, he gets away from his protagonist very much. Yeah. And, and I think even in that, you're not hearing his thoughts. Oh, gotcha. You just see his just actions. Kind of seeing his actions. But yeah, it's like human life is experienced from a single perspective. It's not, exactly. you know, and it's good to jump around. I just, on this show, one of the last episodes, maybe the last episode, I can't honestly remember. I did Vera Caspery's Laura, Ooh. which is three or four perspectives. And then one of the perspectives, because it's the least interesting character, is just his interview with the police. <laughs> the character Vincent Price plays Shelby Carpenter, who is kind of this shallow manipulator fuckboy, actually. Mm -hmm. That would fit on fuckboy. Yeah, Laura. no, I love the movie. I have the book. I just have the not had is, the time to read the it. The book is great. And, uh, but yeah, Shelby Carpenter doesn't get his own first person chapter. But there's a transcript of him being interviewed by the police. <laughs> and then you go back to uh, Waldo Lidecker because he's the funniest one. And it's funny to like, let's hear his side of the story again. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very, to me, it's an interesting, it's always an interesting choice. I, I do tend to default to what I wrote my first prose in maybe decades, uh, fairly recently. And I did that in first person singular. And yeah. it was also, it was the kind of, and it was the thing where it wasn't from the point of view of the hero, quote unquote, it was from the point of view of his long suffering boss, best friend, who's just frustrated with the whole experience. <laughs> um, I did this anthology. I did a comic for this Colshack uh, anthology. I don't know if you remember that character. I do. I did a cult. I did his origin story, which was great. Oh, uh, and funny. I did that in a first person thing. But then uh, they were also doing a prose anthology. And the second pilot ends with Kolshak, his boss, and a pretty young woman headed for New York City to start over again. Ooh. And then the TV series begins, and Kolshak and his boss are working together in Chicago. And there's <laughs> no explanation <laughs> of what happened to that poor girl. <laughs> what happened on the train ride between and New York City and Chicago? His, his boss is, they're in a car actually headed through Eastern Washington state. So on a show about monsters, you might be able to guess what they encounter in the hills of Eastern Washington state in the forests. Uh, so yes, it's a Sasquatch story, but because uh, what else? Why would not? Yeah. But uh, aside from like, you know, malicious pot growers and that's a very human kind of. I don't of, know. There's a uh, lot of weird right wingers up there. Yeah, too, no, so. absolutely. But um I thought it would be much funnier if it was Tony Vincenzo, his boss, <laughs> telling this story about what a frustrating pain in the ass Kolshak is, is to how, he scared, with this how he scared away the nice lady they were traveling with. 
and fuck she up was their cute. lives. What's the matter? Yeah. And she's like, you two are like magnets for nonsense. And I don't want to spend any time with you anymore. Rather um, live in Manhattan by myself. Yeah. Yeah. You guys can go to Chicago. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, it's always a, to me, it's a fascinating thing of technique. And I had never known, but this is Twitter that there was a tribal like first person is bad and wrong. Yeah, no, no, no. I American novels are written in first person. There's literally a review of my book on Goodreads of just like I don't normally read things in first person, and I'm like, it's like ninety percent of books. What are you talking yeah, about? It's just, it's just the strangest goddamn <laughs> thing to object to. Yeah, no, like third person. Uh, limited omniscient present tense is like what YA is written in now. So uh-huh. they'll be like, Ellen reaches for the door. Ellen opens the door. Ellen's surprised by what she sees. And I'm just yeah. like, those are stage directions. Exactly. Like That's just a write a play. Yeah. Yeah, no, Jesus I don't get it. Mary. There's something to it. I mean, I don't, like I said, I'm of the like, write in whatever the hell you want to and whatever mm-hmm. the material lends itself to. Yeah. But to me, like with the Betty Page thing, it's like to me, the whole attraction of writing that character was that she was a really interesting woman. Yeah. And how she navigated a hostile, a world that was hostile to gorgeous, sassy ladies mm-hmm. who took their clothes off. Yeah. So, uh, that was fascinating to me. And that she didn't, there were parts of her, the beautiful parts of her soul that she did not give up and did not let anyone take away from her. Uh, that was the only reason I wrote that series. I was like, this is, I, I watched the documentary about her and listened to her voice. Mm-hmm. Literally the light bulb was her voice. That's the face is great, but the the thing that's unique. And I got Elvira behind me speaking of voices. Yeah, no lie. But, you know, but I, you know, those comics, I don't, there are no caption bo- boxes in them because Elvira will turn right to the audience and speak. Yeah. yeah. No, you know, every once in a while. her I, as a person. Yeah. Every once in a while, I will put an author's note, you know, uh, there's a, the upcoming issue, she interacts with Freddy Krueger, a, a mad magazine version of Freddy Krueger, and she's trying to figure out how to defeat him using the, the whole series. And she's like, oh, wait, these are like, it's like the opposite of the Star Trek movies things. The odd numbered ones are good. And I did a little author's note. I unironically love the odd-numbered Star Trek movies, but this is Elvira speaking. <laughs> yes, exactly. Do not confuse this for my opinion. This is Elvira's opinion as a, as a professional. Uh, uh, it's the one with the fucking whales, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that I don't. That that's not one of my favorites. Um, I do not love the one with the fucking. Whales. I mean, it's it's good. I like. It's not that I. I oh gave, no no no. The number ones are great. It's just I also love the odd number one. <laughs> And no, the, I, I love the audacity of the one with the whales and yeah. the fact that no one can remember the actual name of the that's the thing that I find the most enjoyable the about it. Someone home. Who's, it is a very flat title. It is so dumb. It is and a so, really flat and I'm as opposed like, to the one with the whales. The which, one with you know. the fucking whales. But it's I also just, love when but I also love when people, and this is a whole other conversation, but when people are like, Star Trek is too woke now. In 1986, they made a movie where the crew of the Enterprise literally saved the whales. They literally like, saved the whales. <laughs> like literally the plot of that movie. Mine melted with some humpbacks. 1980s bumper Poster. sticker. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Star Trek colon save the whales. Save you know, like, the whales. You know, it's like, oh, they're so woke now. 
Oh, I God. think that has always been the brand, guys. Um, get over it. Have you ever seen this before? Yeah. <laughs> and, you no, know, it's, it's kind of like now people realizing that the stormtroopers were bad. And it's like, yeah, dude, they're yeah. They're no, it's, I always yeah. love to remind people the first issue of Captain America, he's literally punching Hitler on in the face on the cover. And this is before we were at war. Yeah. That's like an American superhero punching a foreign leader in the face. And we are not at war with them or exactly. anything. Exactly. And the first issue of Superman, the first villains in Superman before Lex Luthor comes along are a slumlord gouging his tenants and a domestic violence case. Like the first people yeah. Superman beats up are big on someone your own size, Tiny. You know, <laughs> to a guy who punches his wife. Unequivocally like, bad people. Yeah. It's like, no, in the Depression, we knew who the bad guys were, and no. the Jewish guys from Cleveland were writing about slumlords and domestic and violence. Yeah, know? exactly. Things and that no, they gave a shit about. Yeah, it's one of know? the things that I always try to tell people that, like, prohibition happened because guys would get so drunk that they'd, like, go home and beat the crap out of their wives, and the wives knew it was easier to get alcohol banned in the country than to get laws of like against domestic right. violence. That's the bleak history of prohibition, not yeah. the fact that, like, a bunch of you know, preachers took it on too and yeah. fucked it all well, up. That's the legacy of prohibition, guys. Speaking of laws from the 1920s, everyone said, or 1930s, everyone says, uh, you know, that dumbass, we, you know, if we ban assault rifles, it won't change anything. You know what is banned in the United States? Fully automatic machine guns and automatic rifles are actually mm -hmm. banned. Actually now, if banned. it's so easy for criminals to get their hands on those, why is no one shooting up schools with Mac-10s? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a Mac-10 is small. It has like a 30 or 50 round clip. It's super mm -hmm. easy to kill a lot of people with them. And if criminals can get their hands on any illegal gun, why aren't school shootings done why with Mac-10s and Uzi's yeah. and Heckler and Koch HP-5? Like there are a lot of machine guns out there and no one's using them. They're using the ones you can buy at Walmart. Exactly. You know, crazy. But anyway, all of that to say, thank you so much for coming on the show. The book comes out November. Uh, November 8th. You can pre-order it wherever you buy books. It is actually distributed by someone who will always get it to you. Don't worry. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for joining me again. It was a great pleasure. This was a blast. Thank and you I so much. And I look forward to coming on your show and talking about Laura or something else. Whenever you want. <laughs> Take care. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.